Hello and welcome to the Athlete Archives. I'm glad you're here. This is episode four, Chappie. This is the story of Ray Chapman, but the story of Ray Chapman can't really be told without also at least telling part of the story of Carl Mays. That's because in August of 1920, Ray Chapman became the first and thankfully the only player to be killed in Major League Baseball by a pitch. And that pitch was thrown by Carl Mays. I'll spend a few minutes on the background of these two men, but I'll also cover some of the changes that were taking place in Major League Baseball at the time that acted as a catalyst for this terrible event. Ray Chapman was born January 15, 1891 in Beaver Dam, Kentucky. His family moved to Southern Illinois when he was a kid and his dad was a coal miner. When Ray was old enough, he joined his father working in the mines. And it's said that for the rest of his life, he probably carried his United Mine Workers Local 986 union card to remind himself of his humble beginnings. As Ray became a baseball star, he made friends with a lot of powerful and famous people. He was well-known by CEOs and politicians, and you don't really have to do much reading on Chapman to find descriptions of how popular he was. Everybody seemed to like him. Um, he was quick to joke and to laugh, and he just seemed to be kind of uh, the life of the party kind of guy and very likable. Ray ended up meeting the daughter, Kathleen, of a wealthy oil man named Martin Daly. Kathleen grew up on a street commonly called Millionaire's Row, and when they were dating, Kathleen would go to the Indians games in her chauffeur-driven limousine. So she obviously grew up wealthy, and when Ray asked for Kathleen's hand in marriage, Martin Daly made plans for Ray's future as a business partner. He often said that he wasn't losing a daughter, he was gaining a business partner. He had planned for Ray to take over his business, and after they married in late 1919, Ray agreed to play one final season of baseball before hanging it up and going into business. The future looked very, very bright for Ray and Kathleen Chapman. Ray got his start playing semi-pro ball as a teenager while working in the mines when he was discovered by scout Dick Kinsella. Uh, Dick Kinsella signed Ray to Springfield for 1910 and then sold him to Davenport, Iowa. While playing for Davenport in 1911, Ray was spotted by Toledo Mudhens scout Bill Armour. He would finish 1911 in Toledo and play for the Mud Hens in 1912 when he was called up in August for his Major League debut with Cleveland. The 1912 Naps included two of the greatest hitters of all time, an aging Nap Lajaway, the first man to hit over 400, and a 25-year-old Shoeless Joe Jackson, who hit 408 the year before. Chapman fit right in and hit 312 in his 31 games to finish the season. In 1913, Chapman and Lajaway became a very formidable middle infield. Uh, Chapman played well enough to warrant a pay raise from $2,400 to $3,500 a year, which is roughly $71,000 to $104,000 today. And just to kind of illustrate how beloved Ray was to his teammates, in spring training of 1914, he broke his leg, and without Ray at the start of the season, writer Henry Edwards of the Cleveland Plains Dealer wrote, 
quote, The first six weeks of that season with Chapman in the hospital was like traveling with mourners. Never a song, never a funny story, never a thing to bring a smile. It was the most discouraged aggregation of ballplayers I ever saw, and it remained such until Chapman rejoined the team. 1917 was a great year for Ray. Baseball Magazine that year called him the greatest shortstop since Honus Wagner. The Naps became the Indians that year, and they had lost Shoeless Joe to the White Sox after 1915. But they added the great Tris Speaker from Boston, who hit 386 in 1916 and 352 in 1917. The Indians would finish in third place for 1917 and then second place in 1918 and second place again in 1919. This is when Ray agreed to give it one more shot, play one final season. He really wanted to win a World Series with his best friend, Tris Speaker. So, in 1920, the Indians had been chasing two teams for years, the Red Sox and the White Sox. In 1915, the American League champs were the Boston Red Sox. They had a 20-year-old kid who was pretty good. In 1916, the Red Sox repeated as American League champs. And in 1917, it was the Chicago White Sox, who now had shoeless Joe Jackson. 1918, the Red Sox again. 1919, the White Sox. And, of course, that 1919 White Sox team uh, would go down in history as the infamous Black Sox, who were paid off to throw the 1919 World Series. In spring training of 1920, the Yankees were playing the Dodgers in a game that would foreshadow that horrible day that was coming in August. On March 25th, Yankees second baseman Chick Fuster led off in the bottom of the first, and on a 2-2 two two count, pitcher Jeff Pfeffer... Um, there were two Jeff Pfeffers, believe it or not, who were playing in the league at that time. They were brothers, and this was the younger Jeff Pfeffer. Threw a curveball that ran in on Fuster and nailed him in the head at the base of the skull. Outfielder Zach Wheat described the sound as a terrible wallop. Fuster dropped and his body started spasming, and it took 10 minutes to revive him. And, of course, being 1920, I'm sure he received the greatest medical care. They probably rubbed some dirt on it. But he did regain consciousness, and he could not remember what happened, and by the time they got him into the locker room, he could no longer speak. His skull had been fractured, and a blood clot was preventing his vocal cords from functioning. Once he could speak again, his vocabulary, reportedly, consisted of only two words. Which two words... Is not documented. A month later, uh, he was still in a wheelchair. But fortunately, somehow, Fuster would ultimately be okay and unbelievably would be playing ball again on July 5th, less than 15 weeks after being hit. Anyways, watching all of this happen from the Yankees bench was pitcher Carl Mays. So let me talk for a minute about Carl Mays. Carl Mays was a very good major league pitcher, winning over 200 games in his career, a 15-year career. He was a submarine pitcher who had a reputation, a reputation as a beanballer. He also had a reputation as a Cleveland nemesis. Mays had a 12-2 record against Cleveland in his first three seasons. 
And there was also some bad blood between Carl Mays and Trish Speaker. In 1918, Mays had thrown a pitch at Speaker's head, and Trish tried to get out of the way, but the ball hit him in the top of his skull, and Speaker did not take that too kindly. He had actually been a teammate of Mays um, on the Red Sox, and he didn't like him then, so he certainly didn't like him as an opponent. Uh, Tris and the rest of the Indians believed that Carl Mays was a headhunter. In Alan Wood's Sabre profile on Mays, he says that Mays was, quote, perhaps the most disliked player of his era. So, not the most disliked on his team, or the dis most disliked in the American League, or the most disliked player in 1920. He was the most disliked player on all teams of all years during the dead ball era. But let's look closer at who Carl Mays was. Carl's father died when Carl was 12 years old. His mother was left to raise eight kids by herself. And shortly after she moved the family from Missouri to Oklahoma, where Carl was introduced to baseball by his cousin. At the age of 16, Carl made a semi-pro team in Oklahoma, and he pitched five complete games in five days to win the Oklahoma State Tournament. That led to a job playing in Kansas the next year. So this is, what is he, 17 years old now? He's leaving home to play in Kansas, and then to Utah, then Idaho, then Portland, and then Providence. And eventually, in 1915, he lands with the Boston Red Sox. So Mays had a very pronounced submarine delivery. Sometimes he would actually scrape his knuckles on the ground during the pitch. I think it's interesting to see how people spoke and wrote 100 years ago. This is a description of Carl Mays from Baseball Magazine. Quote, a pretty wise noodle, a crazy style of delivery, and not much else, have made Carl Mays one of the game's leading pitchers. Mays has less stuff than a whole raft of other boxmen whom he outclasses in winning results, but his summary delivery is mighty effective in torpedoing the batters. Carl slings the pill from his toes, has a weird-looking windup, and in action looks like a cross between an octopus and a bowler. He shoots the ball in at the batter at such unexpected angles that his delivery is hard to find. Mays wasn't, in fact, the first submariner. Uh, early rules of baseball required pitchers to throw underhand. Mays started experimenting with sidearm and submarine pitching after seeing Iron Man Joe McGinnity pitch in the minors as a player manager for the Tacoma Tigers in 1913. Despite the unorthodox delivery, Mays was known for his control and oddly for someone known for control and who bragged about how much control he had, he somehow led the league and hit batsman in 1917. And from what I read, it wasn't just opponents who disliked Carl Mays. Uh, his own teammates didn't like him. Writers didn't like him. And fans didn't like him. He actually threw the ball at a fan's head in Philadelphia, hitting him in the head and breaking his straw hat. He was not a popular guy. Let's talk about some contributing factors to what happened. There were some rules changes that may have impacted this event. 
During the winter meetings of 1919, the league decided to outright ban certain pitches. These included the spitball, the shine ball, the emery ball, and the licorice ball. Pitchers were now explicitly forbidden from using any foreign substance on the ball. And also, oddly enough, each team was allowed to designate two pitchers for 1920 who were exempt from this rule. Kind of weird, but um, that rule impacted the game in that it was now illegal for pitchers to use any foreign substance, including rosin, which many pitchers used for increased grip and control on the ball. In addition, it was decided that home teams should provide as many baseballs as necessary and that umpires should discard warm balls as necessary in an effort to increase offense. The rule changes had an immediate effect. Scoring increased from 3.9 runs per game in 1919 to 4.4 in 1920 and then 4.9 in 1921. Prior to the 1920 season, the home team was required to provide one dozen baseballs. That's it, just 12 balls. Uh, Back then, fans were not allowed to keep balls. Foul balls and home runs were returned to the field. And actually, in 1916, three fans were arrested for petty larceny for trying to hide a foul ball uh, in order to keep it. As the 1920 season unfolded, owners became very uneasy with how many baseballs umpires were throwing out in games, and they increased ticket prices to compensate for this increased cost in balls. It was becoming a problem for the owners. So the owners started flexing their collective muscle, and American League President Ban Johnson instructed the umpires to keep a baseball in the game as long as possible. So by keeping baseballs in the game as long as possible, you end up with dirty, darker game balls. If you couple dirty baseballs, which are harder to see, with pitchers no longer being able to use rosin for grip, um, and then the day of Chapman being hit, it had rained, so the baseball was wet. And Carl Mays had an unusual submarine delivery. He liked to pitch inside. And that day in August was dark and overcast, so you can kind of see how Ray Chapman had many cards stacked against him. Let's talk about that meaning. Um, There was a heat wave the third week of August 1920 in New York. Early in the morning, people were already sweating from the high humidity. And Carl Mays would get the start for New York, going for his 100th Major League win. 23,000 sweating fans turned out to see the game, and as Mays warmed up before the top of the first, rain started to fall. The umpire behind the plate that day was highly experienced veteran Tommy Connolly, who had umpired the first American League game ever played as well as the first World Series. The rain would stop in the fourth inning with Cleveland up 1-0, and in the top of the fourth, the Indians tacked on two more runs, one on an error possibly from the wet ball. Yankees hitters went down 1-2-3 in the bottom of the fourth. Peckinpah popped up to third, Babe Ruth grounded out to first, and Pratt fouled out to catcher O'Neill. And the skies were dark uh, and gray as Carl Mays took the mound for the fifth inning. Ray Chapman had a reputation as an excellent bunner. He had actually led the league the previous year with 50 sacrifice bunts, and he often bunted for a single. So... Carl Mays would routinely pitch Chapman up and in to make it harder for him to bunt. 
As Chapman stood in to face Carl Mays on the top of the fifth, Mays threw a fastball high and tight inside. And according to all reports, the ball came in directly at Ray's head and Ray never even moved. Whether he could not see the ball or, or what, we don't know. But it hit Ray squarely in the temple with a loud crack. Uh, the ball ricocheted off Ray's head so hard that the ball came back out to Carl Mays. Mays heard the crack and he assumed that it had hit the bat, so he fielded it and threw it to first. Meanwhile, at the plate, Ray had fallen to his knees and umpire Connolly immediately saw blood coming from Ray's ear and he started shouting for a doctor. Tris Speaker was on deck and he came running out to Ray. Ray was trying to sit up, and he was moving his lips and trying to speak, but nothing was coming out. After a few minutes, Ray was able to stand up, and the fans were cheering. Ray started a walk across the infield to the clubhouse, which at that time was behind center field. And as he neared second base, his knees gave out, and teammates had to carry him the rest of the way. So the game continued on, and everyone believed that Ray would be fine. After all, he stood up and he was walking. Uh, but inside the locker room, two doctors were on site. Uh, the team doctor for the Yankees, Dr. Stewart, and a Dr. Cassio of St. Lawrence Hospital. The doctors believed that Ray should immediately have surgery to relieve pressure on the brain. The hospital was only a half mile away and an ambulance was already coming. Ray was apparently trying to speak, but it was all incomprehensible. And once in the ambulance and at the hospital, when he could finally speak again, he asked to please don't tell his fiancée, Kathleen. And then he fell unconscious. Manager and best friend, Tris Speaker, had released a statement to the press that night. He was optimistic about Ray. Tris said, quote, I was hit on the head in 1916 in a manner similar to this, and I am hopeful that Chappie will be back again as soon as I was. I was out of the game for 10 days. The blow laid me out as much as this one laid out Chappie, and for a time a severe fracture was feared, but it turned out that it was the other way. I was badly scared when I saw Ray try to talk this afternoon, but he was able to talk tonight, so that worry is over. I am inclined to believe that if there is a fracture, it is not a severe one. The team had come to the hospital after the game. When it appeared that Ray was stable, they went to the team hotel for the night. Tris stayed behind and called Ray's fiance, who immediately got on a train for New York. Later that night, doctors gave Tris an update. X-rays had confirmed a two-arm fracture three and a half inches along the base of his skull. And I guess what worried doctors was it was a depressed fracture, meaning a piece of the bone was pressing in on Ray's brain. And Ray's pulse was also dropping down now to 40 beats per minute. So by 10 p.m., doctors needed someone to make a decision on surgery. Tris, who was unable to reach Kathleen now that she was on a train, gave the okay. Ray went on the operating table just after midnight and the surgeons made an incision at the base of the skull and found a rupture of the lateral sinus and a quantity of clouded blood. The surgeon removed a piece of Ray's skull and found multiple blood clots on the brain. 
The operation lasted a little over an hour, and when it was over, Ray's breathing and his heart rate stabilized. So surgery seemed to have gone well, and Ray's condition was upgraded to fair. Relieved, Tris Speaker went back to the team hotel to let everyone know that the surgery went well and to get some sleep. Kathleen's train arrived at 10 a.m., and when she was escorted to the team hotel, she met Tris Speaker, and she knew immediately. Unfortunately, uh, Tris had received word that at 4.40 in the morning, Ray had passed at the age of 29. The team was in tears at the hotel, and pretty quickly their sadness turned to anger. Ray's teammates were saying that Carl Mays should not be allowed to pitch again. Some said that he should be strung up. Very quickly, word of Ray's death made it around the league, and the Red Sox had signed a petition to ban Mays from Major League Baseball, and they sent it to American League President Ben Johnson. Ty Cobb, who hated Mays, and the Tigers talked about refusing to bat if Mays was allowed to pitch. The Washington Senators and the St. Louis Browns met and agreed that Mays needed to be removed from baseball. The Sporting News reported, quote, If the news had come over the wire that a ball player had been killed by a pitch ball without naming who pitched the ball, the Browns, to a man, would have guessed who did the pitching. When word got around to Mays, he insisted that it was an accident, and he tried to deflect blame. He said, quote, It was the umpire's fault. A roughened spot on the ball will make a ball do queer things. Umpires are instructed to throw out balls that have been roughed. Well, this infuriated the umpires. Umpires Will Deneen and Billy Evans were quoted pointing out that Mays had made a career out of intentionally scuffing baseballs, and further that club owners had put pressure on Van Johnson to limit the balls being used because of cost, and that the umpires had been directed to keep balls in the game as long as possible. So who was to blame here? Was Connolly to blame, the umpire? Or was it Carl Mays for scuffing the ball? Or were the owners to blame for pressuring the umpires to keep balls in games that probably should have been removed? Or was it the rules changes and the lack of rosin? Or was it the fact that the ball was wet from the rain? Or was it the dark gray sky making the ball hard to see? Or was it Probably all of those things in combination that spelled doom for Ray. Ray's close friend, outfielder Jack Graney, did not attend Ray's funeral. Graney had fainted at the sight of Ray's coffin earlier, and not Nap Lajaway had driven him out into the countryside to calm him down. Trish Speaker also did not attend the funeral. Speaker was in bed under medical supervision after suffering a nervous breakdown. Obviously, his teammates were hit hard. Tiger shortstop Donnie Bush offered to go play for the Indians for the rest of the season to help them hold on and to win the pennant. The Tigers were out of the race at this point. But this obviously wasn't allowed, and the Indians found themselves... Pretty thin at shortstop without Ray. Harry Lunt took over the spot, but soon pulled a hamstring, and then suddenly the Indians found themselves in a pennant race with no shortstop. 
The Indians had a one-game lead over the White Sox and the Yankees through 130 games, and they needed an answer quick. After debating whether to use one of the outfielders on the bench as a shortstop, it was decided to give a youngster in the minor leagues just out of college, University of Alabama, a shot. The tiny, five-foot-six-inch Joe Sewell. On September 7, 1920, when New Orleans Pelican manager Johnny Dobbs told Sewell that he was getting called up, Joe said he didn't want to go. So Joe didn't think himself that he was ready. He had never even been to a major league game as a fan. And in fact, he had never even left the South. And at this time, all of the major league cities were north of the Mason-Dixon line. So it took some convincing from teammates, but Joe eventually made his way to Cleveland. And Joe Sewell, if you don't recognize the name, he would never play another day in the minor leagues. He would go on to be a Hall of Famer. In looking at his stats in depth, it appears that Joe was an average to slightly better than average shortstop defensively. But offensively, he was impressive with a career batting average of 312. But to anyone who knows Joe Sewell's stats, what's really impressive really impressive is his strikeout numbers look at these numbers they're crazy in 1925 he struck out four times in 699 plate appearances it's not unusual for a guy to strike out four times in a game in major league baseball between 1929 and 1930 he struck out seven times in two seasons two full seasons in 1932 he said his career low K rate was 0.5%. That's one strikeout every 200 plate appearances. It's insane. Joe would fill Ray's shoes admirably, and the 1920 season ended in Hollywood fashion with the Indians winning the American League by two games over the Chicago White Sox. And they would go on to face Zach Wheat and the Brooklyn Robins in the World Series and win that World Series five games to two. Back then it was a best of nine series. Uh, let's rewind a bit. Uh, Carl Mays on August 23rd was back out on the mound, six days after Ray Chapman's death. Mays would go on to play nine more seasons, and he would have his career year the following season in 1921 when he would go 27-9, and and he pitched in 336 innings. He would also go on over the course of the rest of his career to hit 33 more players with pitches. After his career was over, Mays, ironically, would work as a scout for the Cleveland Indians and then the Milwaukee and Atlanta Braves. He died on April 4, 1971, at the age of 79. Ray's death is tragic in itself, but unfortunately it gets worse. After Ray's death, his wife gave birth to a baby girl named Ray Chapman, R-A-E Chapman, uh, Ray was born on February 27, 1921, but Kathleen suffered from depression and, and other issues, and she was in and out of the hospital over the years, and seven years later, uh, in April of 1928, Kathleen committed suicide. A year after that, in April of 1929, Ray would die from measles at the age of eight, and just like that, the family of Ray Chapman was gone.
Interestingly, before Ray, there were at least two other deaths that I could find in baseball from a better being hit in the head. They just weren't at the major league level. In June of 1916, Johnny Dodge was killed while playing for Mobile of the Southern League. And before that, in August of 1906, in the New England League, outfielder Tom Burke was hit in the head and he died. Even after three deaths, it still took until 1941 before the Brooklyn Dodgers became the first team to wear helmets after Pee Wee Reese had been hit in the head. And Pee Wee would end up being the first player to wear a helmet. MLB didn't make helmets mandatory until 1971. Even then, existing players were grandfathered in. And you can find on YouTube, uh, I just happened to stumble on a video of Norm Cash, uh, Detroit Tiger, facing Nolan Ryan in 1974 uh, without a helmet. So we're more than 100 years removed from it, but I'm honestly surprised that we haven't had another death on the field. Batters are protected with helmets, but pitchers are completely exposed. And with exit velos, you know, commonly over 100 miles an hour, I would not be shocked if a pitcher ends up dying from a batted ball in my lifetime. I hope that it doesn't take a death to get pitchers to wear some sort of head protection, whether that's a Kevlar insert in the hat or something else. I don't know. Uh, we've seen already some comebackers in the last couple of years that have been pretty scary. Well, that's the story of Ray Chapman. I know uh, it's a little bit depressing, uh, but he is a, an important part of the history of the game, and I think it's worth hearing about him and understanding what happened that day a little over 100 years ago. Thank you for your time, and I hope you consider subscribing to the channel so you don't miss the next episode. Thank you, and take care.